We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Um, sometimes I have like a catchy hook or try and get people's interest peaked, but we're just going to start with the Bible this morning, uh, which in my opinion is a pretty good place to start. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 6, verses 2 through 19. We're going to go through that, but before we do, I want you to kind of know the, the roadmap for this morning. Paul is dealing with issues of church matters, <clears throat> and when we get to chapter 6, He's going to start talking about issues of money and possessions and how poor people deal with that and how rich people deal with that. And I just love how balanced of an approach that he takes. Hopefully you're not feeling this, but as the preacher, I've been, this is week number, is it five or six? This is five on the generosity series and and I'm growing kind of fatigued in it personally. I pray that you're not. But I just want to kind of alleviate some pressure this morning. I realize whenever we talk about giving, people get kind of, hey, you know, it, it's, it's a tense thing. And sometimes for good reasons, right? Churches have abused people. And that's not what we're about. That's what we've said. We're not twisting arms. God's not guilt-tripping people. He wants us to be balanced in our generosity. And there's reasons behind that. And I think this passage really speaks into how to be balanced when we talk about biblical generosity, when we're talking, whether we're talking about stewarding our our talent, the gifts that he's given us, our treasure, our money and possessions, which as we've said, aren't really ours. God owns it all, right? And then our time as well. So that's kind of where we're going. Um, Yeah, so let's jump in, starting in verse two. I'll read it and then we'll, I'll read a little bit of it and then we'll unpack it. Starting in verse two. 1 Timothy 6. It'll be on the screen. You can follow along, or if you've got your phones or, or Bibles, you can get it out. I'll be reading from the NLT this morning. It says this, Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life, and anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments, ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Now, let's pause there and let me talk about it a little bit. We always want to be careful whenever we're, we're coming to any scripture, wherever it's at, we always want to read it in context. And so just so you know, we're in chapter six of a letter that Paul, kind of a, a spiritual mentor, is writing to his spiritual mentee, uh, a, a new young pastor coming up through the ranks to Timothy. And he's just spent five chapters explaining to Timothy kind of all of the things that he's going to face being a pastor. So he's talked about false teachers and Hymenaeus and Philetus and how they're arguing about words and predestination and quibbling about this, that, and the other thing and making a big stink about stuff and it's dividing the church. So he tells them how to deal with folks like that. He also lets them know know about how men and women, bless you, how men and women, (laughs) he also lets them know how men and women should operate in the church. And so he's talking about church business and a lot of variety of issues. And then he comes in verse six to kind of summarize what he's been saying and then auger into issues of wealth and money. And he says, Timothy, teach these things. So when he says, teach these things, he has in mind everything that he's talked about in the scripture. How to deal with false teachers, how men and women should conduct themselves in truth or in the church and how, how we should view biblical generosity. 
So he augurs in down here and he says, teach these things. Teach these things. So Paul, when we get to chapter six, there's a bit of a shift where he, he begins to auger down into riches. This is a topic that was hot, a hot topic back then. It's also a hot topic today. Money's a part of our life. Economics is a part of our life. And God has something to say about how we view it. In verse five, we discover that how many folks in that particular church were viewing economics, matters of generosity, giving, stewardship, that they have a really flawed view of it and it's starting to cause problems. And so in verse five, we discover the heart of the issue. Folks are treating issues of, of generosity as a matter of the law instead of a matter of the gospel. Now, I'm gonna unpack what that means, but look again at verse five. He says, these people... Again, these false teachers, these word wranglers, they're quibbling over words and making theological stinks over things that God doesn't make theological stinks over. They're arguing. He says, these people always cause trouble. Every church has got a few folks that really want to auger in on something that God just hasn't explained that clear. And when the Bible stops teaching, we need to stop trying to learn. So he says, we've got these false teachers. They're causing trouble. He says, their minds are corrupt. Now, what that means is that they hold a mistaken view about reality. So when they look at the world, when they look at the scriptures, what they see, it might feel real to them, but it's wrong. He says they are mistaken in how they perceive the world. It does not line up with God's truth. In fact, he goes so far in verse 5 to say they've turned their backs on the truth. So how have they done that? What specifically is their error? He says at the very end, he says to them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. A show of godliness has become for them just another way for them to increase their wealth in this life. What does that mean? Let's unpack that a little bit. I think it means that what they did is what every human heart is prone to do. They do, they did hear what all of our hearts are so prone to do. They took a good gospel guideline on giving and they made it into an absolute hard and fast law. Church, we are so prone as fallen human beings. We, we love laws. We love laws. We love rules and standards that are objective that we can measure ourselves up to. We don't like gray areas, especially in matters of faith, right? We want to know that we can look at this rule and that rule and that law and this rule and know that God is pleased with us. And then we can look at ourselves and we can be pretty pleased at us because we've achieved all the rules and crossed all the dots and checked off all the T's, right? We love rules over relationship because it's more, subje or more objective. Rules are neat and tidy. In all honesty, they don't require that much from us. They don't require that much discernment. Like, well, hey, what's it say in the code book? In this situation, if I have my child and they're a firstborn and they're doing this and we've got the code book, always do this in this situation. It doesn't require that much for us. We just look up the code and do what it says. Relationships, on the other hand, they require a lot more from us, don't they? They're a lot more messy than neat and tidy rules. We've all had this thought before, I think, in our relationship with God, no matter where you're at. You don't even know the Lord yet. That's okay. We're glad you're here. Um, we hope you find him and he finds you. But wherever we're at and kind of sorting this faith thing out, each and every one of us comes across situations where we just think, God, would you just tell me what to do? 
Give me a chapter and verse I can go to that says, in this situation, do this. We've all thought that. I imagine as we've gone through the shift series talking about generosity and the campaign, I imagine that some of you have thought, man, I sure, I sure it would be nice if just Wes would get up there, Levi would get up there, the leadership, they just say, hey, give this much. If you give this much, God will be happy with you. Just give this percentage and, and there it is. Just make a hard and fast rule and I can be done with it. I don't have to pray about it. I don't have to sort it out. I don't need discernment. I don't need to, to do all this other stuff. Just give me the rule. I hear you. And I get that sentiment personally. There's a lot of times like, Lord, I wish you'd be more clear. I wish you just tell me what to do. And although it would be easier for me to preach sermons that way, and although it would be easier to, for the leadership to stand up here and just give you a code book that says, here's what is required, I need you to know that the leadership here is never going to do that. We're never going to do that. We aren't going to give you a law in any area, let alone giving, because God doesn't do that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, rather than giving us hard and fast laws, God instead chooses to deal with matters of our heart. He doesn't give us a rule book, but instead he gives us a relationship. A relationship where if we stay connected to him, then he promises to go with us into every situation, into every decision that we have to make, he promises to guide us. There are some guidelines that he gives us along the way in his scripture, but they're not always true in every situation. It's not an absolute. In this situation, always do this. It's why if you read the Proverbs, he might say one thing like, hey, in this situation, do this, but in this situation, do something completely different. It's because life is complex and no code book is gonna get us through it. And so God promises to go with you. So whether we're talking about giving to the shift campaign or whether you should fill out a, a, a Christmas box, or how you should spend your time, or how you should parent. God doesn't give us rules. He gives us relationship, and he says, hey, come to me. Let's process that together. I'll guide you. I'll direct you. So while rules may be simpler, laws and rules always avoid the matter of the heart, and they almost always lead to unhealthy extremes. I listened to a message about four or five years ago by a guy named J.D. Greer, Austin pastor, gifted communicator. I'm going to give you some info from that message later in this, in this sermon. But when we're talking about giving specifically in generosity, there are really two laws that he says that Christians like to throw out as absolutes, and they can lead us in, into really dangerous, unbalanced, unhealthy things, errors, when we talk about biblical generosity. He says the first error that we make, or the first hard and fast law that we throw out there is this. Well, if you're a good Christian, God says you will tithe. We throw that out as an absolute. Some people do. They say, God needs you to tithe. A tithe is a churchy word, right? No one uses, who says tithe? Nobody says tithe unless you go to a church. It comes from the Old Testament. I don't know what the Hebrew is, but I know it means a tenth. In the Old Testament, God had a system where he said, I want you to bring 10% of your overall income. I want you to donate it back to the temple and the priests so they can eat, so we can have festivals, so we can care for the poor and needy. It was a law in the Old Testament. And Christians today have taken that principle and they've said, that is a law for you today as well. That is an absolute. If you're not tithing, you are sinning. Now, I have a problem with that because the New Testament does not do that. It's not, that they throw, it's not that Jesus throws out the law, but he doesn't command it as an absolute. 
See, it's different to say, hey, the tithe, it, it was something God instituted in the Old Testament, and we think it's a really good place to start. It's a good general guideline for maybe where you ought to think about starting or even working towards in your giving, giving percentage-based, maybe 10% or something. But to say, this is an absolute, that you are sinning if you don't do this. God doesn't do that in the New Testament. Making the tithe into a law actually starts to lead to extremes in churches. In churches that command the tithe, two things can start to happen. One, people can begin to get really puffed up and proud about their giving and super judgy towards everyone else, right? Well, look at, look at me. I give 10%. Look at me. Why don't you? What's your problem? You must not be as good of a Christian as me because I am. And to be honest with you, it's a good place to start, but there are some scenarios where God might say, hey, listen, I love that you tithe. I love that you want that as a goal, but look at all this mountain of debt that you're in. I don't want you to, I don't want your family to go without food. All right, I want to provide food, clothing, and shelter. I don't want you to be unwise. I'm a loving God. I give good gifts. You've got this mountain of debt over here. I want you to, I want you to be generous. I still want you to be generous, but maybe let's back that percentage down a little bit so that we can really get you debt-free and then you can experience joy and freedom, and then maybe we can ramp it back up. You see, it's, it's not black and white, folks. And so we can start to make it black and white, and then we can start to, you know, get our nose up, and we're looking down at everybody. It's like, well, look at what I can do. What's your problem? And the reality is, you and I don't know everybody's situation, but God does, and he gives us grace, and he works with us. The other problem that comes in when we make the tie to command in an absolute is people can start to think, well, I did my Christian duty. I gave my 10%, and now the 90%, well, that's mine now, isn't it? I can do whatever I want with that. I don't care what you say, Lord. I, I've got this, that, and the other thing, and here, here we go. Let's go, right? Vacations, checkbooks, whatever. You know, you're, you're at it. We learned a couple weeks ago, that's, that's unbiblical. God owns the, th- the cattle on a thousand hills. He's got the whole world in his hands. You belong to him. He made you. He owns everything. Your money isn't yours. It's the Lord's. So it's inappropriate for you to say, well, I did my duty. I tithed my tithe, and now the rest, well, I'm going to do whatever I want with. That's not what God calls us to. He says, hey, come in relationship. I want you to use everything in your life to give me glory. Yeah, I want you to give some to the church. I want you to be generous and do some of that. I want you to take care of your family. But let's talk about how to use all of it for my glory and building my kingdom, not yours. I'm not about building your kingdom. I'm I'm about building my kingdom. I want you to be a part of that. The last problem that comes with making the tithe a command and an absolute, a law, instead of just a good guideline, the last problem with that is that it can, that mentality can start to turn God into a genie that we tip instead of a God that we worship, right? It goes like this. You've all seen the televangelist stand up on TV and he says, listen, I know you're poor. I know you don't have very much. I know you have this sickness and this ailment, but let me tell you what God wants to do for you. For a small couple payments of X amount of dollars and this little prayer cloth I'm going to send you, if you, just, if you just step out in faith and give this X amount, well, then God's going to open the floodgates. Look, he did it for me. I gave this amount, and now I have a jet, right? Right? That's what they do, right? Translation. For a small show of godliness, you can increase your personal wealth. That's what the folks in this passage are doing. 
They're treating God like a genie to be tipped and manipulated. Hey, if I give you a little bit, if I just give you a little bit of knob, if I rub the lamp the right way, well, then you're going to give me everything that my heart truly desires, which is more stuff. Friends, that is not what generosity is about. God does not call us to be generous so that we can turn him into a genie. He's not a genie. He's the Lord of the universe. He doesn't need your money. He speaks and stars are created. Think about that for a second. He doesn't need anything that you think is yours. Right? So why does he ask us to give? He asks us to give so that we can experience experience the joy of giving him glory. We can experience the joy of showing people who our Lord and Savior is like. Hey, this is what my God is like. Isn't he awesome? Let me tell you about how much he gave to me. And this is why I give. Not to increase my own wealth. Not to get healthy, wealthy, and wise. That ain't the gospel. It's so that I can glorify him. So that I can show you who he is like. Suffice it to say, treating the tithe as a law, it completely misses the point completely misses the point. God doesn't just want us to follow empty religious rules so we can get rich. God's not about that. He wants a relationship with us where we have the joy and privilege of cooperating him with him in building his kingdom. That's the first problem with turning the tithe into a law rather than just a good gospel guideline. It takes us to really unbiblical extremes. The other law that can grab a hold of our hearts and just wreak havoc in our lives, it's kind of the other extreme. It's, it's, a, it's a, a statement that, that we make an absolute, where we, we just live with the sense of guilt, right? People are starving in Africa, and people are going to hell across the world, so why aren't you giving more? Whatever you're giving, it ain't enough, right? There are kids in, in Africa that don't have anything to eat, and you have air conditioning? What's wrong with you, Right? There are kids in Kathmandu who don't know Jesus, missionaries that need supported, and you have silverware in your house? God gave you silverware right here. What's wrong with you, right? That's funny, but that's where that mentality goes. It's living with this condemnation and guilt complex that says whatever you're giving, it ain't enough. We turn this into an absolute. The problem with this, making that whatever you're giving and ain't enough, it's never satisfied. That law can never be satisfied. It never ends. Asking that, like the thing about silverware, like, where do you stop? Like, where, where do you stop saying, well, I guess I could give more? It never ends. The problem with this law, this absolute, is that it's never satisfied and it will lead you into a place where you are giving out of guilt where you're a grumpy giver. That doesn't honor the Lord at all. He He says, I don't want grumpy givers. I want cheerful givers. Not only that, it flies in the face of another scripture we're going to look at here, that God gives us good gifts for our enjoyment. He's a good dad. He wants us to enjoy life. Now, we can take that to an extreme and justify extravagance at a whole level that's just gross and disgusting to the Lord. But that's different than, than having air conditioning in your house or maybe you turn it up a degree or whatever, right? There's balance. 
There's balance to all of this. Here's what I want you to know. There are many laws and extremes that we could discuss on this topic about money. I think these are the two, two most prominent. But whatever religious rule we come up with, whether it's this about giving or in any area of our life, whatever religious rule or law we come up with, here's what you need to know about the law. Laws always lead to dead religious rule following that either puff us up in pride and make us completely forget about God. We've got the rule book. Why do we need God? We'll figure it out. They either make us forget about God and look down on our neighbor, right? Well, I'm measuring up to the rule book. What's your problem? Or, or the flip. It's rules and laws. Straps us with guilt and condemnation because apart from Jesus Christ, you can't fulfill any law. Not perfectly. You'll never measure up. And so Paul lets us know, he says, hey, there are people in the church, Timothy, that are turning generosity into a show of godliness to increase their reputation and manipulate God into giving them more stuff. And I need you to know, these people have completely missed it. Their minds are corrupt. They've turned their back on the truth. They don't know up from down anymore. Rather than being godly, they've become greedy. They've become greedy. And in the next paragraph then that we're going to read in a second, Paul compares and contrasts contentment with godliness against greed. And he says greed is never going to help you attain life. Only contentment with godliness can help you take hold of that which is truly life. Let's look at it. Verse 6. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing in with us into the world when we came into it. We can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation, and they are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people crave money, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Here we see Paul is commanding, recommending, suggesting that Christians need to shift in our thinking about what true wealth really is. He says sometimes people are going to use spiritual sounding words, religious rules and shows of godliness and following those rules to boost their reputation before men and to manipulate God into blessing them. And he says that that's not it. The lie that drives this kind of thinking is the lie that so many of us are, are quick to fall into, myself included, that man's wealth consists in the amount of possessions that he has. We've all seen those t-shirts and bumper stickers, right? The person that dies with the most blank wins. Person that dies with the most toys, person that dies with the most Jeeps, person that dies with the most TVs, whatever. Person that dies with the most whatever wins. Folks, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It ain't true. Jesus tells us as much in the New Testament. Paul reaffirms it here. He says, true wealth, true gain, true life has nothing to do with your possessions. Your value is not based on what you have. It's based on what God said about you, what he did for you on the cross. True wealth does not consist in the amount of possessions we have. That type of thinking comes from greed and worshiping money as God. Paul says this is the love of money. The love of money, not money itself, but the love of it, thinking that it can do things that God said it never can do for us. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so Paul writes to Timothy, 
And he reminds him, he says, hey, true wealth is godliness with contentment or contentment with godliness. He says, Timothy, our life on this earth is a brief journey between two points of nakedness. Isn't that good? I read that in a book. That's not mine. Our journey in this life, our journey in this life is a journey between two moments of nakedness. Can't, you didn't come into this life with anything? You ain't taking anything out with you? There's not a hearse following your, or not a U-Haul following your hearse, right? You can't take any of it with you. Not only is it utterly meaningless to store up treasures for yourself on earth, moth and rust get at them, thieves steal. Not only is it meaningless, but he goes on, he says, greed is dangerous. It's dangerous. He says, greedy people who are never content with what they have, who are always seeking to make a buck and, and get rich, he says, they will fall into temptation and trap themselves. You're probably familiar with the Lord's Prayer part of it. It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I read in a commentary this week that these people, greedy people, he says, they do to themselves what they pray that God would never do to them. They lead themselves into temptation and into traps. Traps like dishonesty, right? Well, I could have a little bit more if I fibbed a little bit on my tax return or if I fudged my hours a little bit here to theft, to all kinds of things. They lead us into places that we never intend to go because of greed. Not only that, Paul continues and he says, greed breeds other harmful desires. Money becomes a drug for you and greed becomes the addiction. And if this weren't bad enough, Paul says that if greed is left unchecked, unchecked it will plunge you into ruin and destruction. I can see this happening in one of two ways. A friend of mine in college who was a wealthy older gentleman, a wise wealthy older gentleman, we were having a conversation. He said, man, you got a nice car. You got all really nice stuff. He said, yeah, Levi, God's blessed me. But you know what I've learned over the years? The more possessions I have, the more those things I possess begin to possess me than me possessing them. Now, you can own things and be wealthy in a wise and godly way and honor him. Paul's going to address the wealthy here at the end. So I'm not heaping shame on people who have things. But there is more work to be done the more that you have. And if you are greedy for more and more and more, you will never be satisfied. You will not be able to sleep because you're worried about doing the next thing to get the next thing or you're worried about losing all that you have. Ecclesiastes says it like this. Ecclesiastes 5.12, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. You see, at best, greed will lead us into disaster in this life, either through debt and or sleepless nights of worrying about how to manage it all and losing it all. And at its worst, greed will lead us to death and destruction in the next life. You can write these two verses down, 1 Corinthians 6 through 10, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10, and Ephesians 5, 5. They're super clear. The greedy will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you're greedy and you love money, heaven is not where you're headed. Now, before we move on, let me just say a bit about contentment. I love that Paul kind of outlines for us here the, the minimum requirement that the Lord expects from us to be content. 
Some people could argue and say, you can be content in any situation because you have Jesus. Yes and amen. But the Lord commands us to be content if we have food, clothing, and shelter. If we're destitute, he doesn't command it. It's not that it's not, it's not that it's impossible to be content if you're destitute, but it's incredibly hard. And our father is a good father who loves us and he wants to feed us and clothe us and make sure that we have shelter. And so Paul, speaking to the poor, he says, listen, if God's taken care of your needs and you're not destitute, then brother, be content with what you got. You could always have more. Yeah, yeah. God's provided the necessities. To say it another way, the Bible acknowledges that the necessities of life are necessary. They're making a distinction here between luxuries and wants versus necessaries. Another way to think about it is that Paul is not defining the maximum that is permitted for the believer, right? You can only have the bare necessities. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the minimum that is compatible for the Lord to expect us to be content in this life. Paul is saying, he's not saying that we should sell everything and live like poor, impoverished monks. Instead, he's rather saying, hey, shoot to be content and godly, whatever your situation. Don't be consumed with greed and materialism. And then he moves on in verses 11 through 16, which I'm not going to read for the sake of time. You can read it later. And he outlines for, for us what it looks like to be content and godly and how to pursue it. You can read that later for yourself. <clears throat> um, we're going to keep moving into uh, verses, let's see here, verses 11 through 19. So Paul kind of wraps up his discussion on money and possessions by speaking to those who are wealthy. In verses 6 through 10, he's been speaking to the poor, to the poor people. And he says to the poor, he says, hey, don't get caught up in the lure of greed. Pursue godliness and be content with what God gives you by way of food and clothing and shelter. Contentment with godliness is great gain. But if you resort to greed to try and gain your life, you are guaranteed to lose everything. Don't do that. That's what he says to the poor. Now he shifts in verse 11 to start speaking to people that have a lot in this life. And he tells the rich, he says, hey, don't, don't get proud. Don't get proud. God gives good gifts. If you're blessed and, and wealthy in this life, it's because the Lord gave it to you. Whether through giftings and business acumen or whatever, anything good that you have, it's come from the Lord. So don't boast. Don't be proud and don't trust in your money because money is so unreliable. Proverbs 23, 5 says, in the blink of an eye, Wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. Have you ever noticed the seal for the Federal Reserve? It's a giant eagle with its wings spread. Almost as if the guy or artist who did that read this proverb. He said, hey, I want everybody to know and be reminded, when they look at this dollar, it's got wings. It's uncertain. There's a parable there, right? Paul says, if you're rich, be careful not to get proud in your wealth. Be careful not to trust in money. Don't trust the gift rather than the giver. Why? Because wealth is so uncertain. Rather than doing those two things, make sure that you're rich towards God. Use the resources that God has blessed you with to be rich towards God and others. Love others. Serve others. Be rich in good deeds. Don't focus on storing up for yourself earthly treasures. Rather, Use this life here and now to invest in the next life to come. Remember, you can't take earthly treasures with you, but you can send eternal ones on 
ahead. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who gives richly to all of us, or gives, gives us all as we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up treasures as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. As I told you at the beginning, I love the, the kind of framework that Paul lays out for us here. He addresses some, some lies that people are believing and how it's kind of just sowing all kinds of nasty seeds among the people. He starts out in verse 5 and he says, Don't treat giving and generosity as a law. That will lead to unbiblical and unbalanced extremes. Either you'll be greedy and prideful, destined for destruction, or you'll be joyless and guilt-tripped, greedy, destined for destruction. He says, don't do that. Instead, shoot for godliness with contentment. Follow these guidelines in relationship with Jesus. Don't settle for overly simplistic rules and laws. Follow some guidelines guided by your heavenly Father in relationship. Then you'll be able to be balanced in your generosity, whether you're rich or poor. So to conclude this morning, I just want to get super practical, and I want to give you six principles, six guidelines for giving that we kind of need to hold in tension with one another. This is not new to me. Again, this comes from J.D. Greer. He actually calls it the generosity matrix, like kind of the, not the matrix with the the shooty thing or whatever, not that, but like, like a decision matrix, right? Where you, you hold these six principles and value and when you come to make a decision, you pray these six principles and ask the Lord to kind of sort you out and figure out what the balanced approach he would call you to. We have to hold them all in tension. We can't just take one to the exclusion of the other five. That would make us really unbalanced, okay? So you say, well, what are these six principles? They're this. They're this. The first one. J.D. Greer says, I, th I think it's in our text. He says, it is the joyful duty of those who have to share with those who have not. I think we can see that in our passage this morning in verse 18 and 19 when God says, hey, if you're rich, then use your money to give to those who need it. Bless others. If, if you've been a blessing, if you've been blessed by God, well, then God's blessed you to be a blessing to others. There's joy in this. Jesus confirms this. He says, it's better to give than it is to receive. That's the first principle. The second principle, he says, we live with radical generosity to others in response to what Jesus' Jesus's radical generosity was displayed to us. If you're not feeling super generous, then you need to take a time out. You need to hit the pause button and you need to contemplate the cross of Jesus Christ. And you need to remind yourself that Jesus sacrificed something he loved so that he could give to something he loved even more. That's what sacrifice is. Giving up something we love so that we can give to something we love even more. Jesus said, man, I love my life. Father, if there's any way, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, I love these people. I love each and every one of these people. And I'm willing to give up something I love so that I might give to these people life in relationship with me. This is the heart of generosity. We give because God gave to us. 
Now again, we got to hold this in tension because if we're not careful, we can think, well, look at what Jesus gave. And we can get in that guilt trip cycle. It's like, if I got silverware, God doesn't love me, right? And that's the problem. That's the problem if we take that one, number two, principle two, and make a hard and fast rule out of it. We turn, it in, we turn our giving into a good work. Where we come to Jesus and we say, hey, I saw what you did for me. I want to give to you so that I can earn your love. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't earn my love. I give it freely. Receive it with grace. It doesn't matter how much you give or how radical your generosity is. You cannot earn an iota of the Lord's love because he already gave all of it freely to you. That's principle two. Principle three. It says the Holy Spirit must guide us as to which sacrifices we are to make. I see this coming out of verse 17 and 18 in our text this morning, especially verse 18. He says, always be ready to share. He doesn't say, always share. He just says, always be on the lookout to share, to be generous. That means that I think God is saying, hey, I've got some works for you to do. But not all of my works got your name on it. Come to me, right? Ask me about it. Let me just free you up a little bit in that. I know, I know how it can be, right? You got Compassion International and LifeWise Academy and Preacher at Crossroads talking about building a building and everybody's doing good things, all good things. And you think, Lord, how much, you want me to do all of this? No. Again, God doesn't need your money. He's inviting you to participate with him. So we need the Holy Spirit to kind of guide and direct us and, 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 and uh, talk us through, hey, what, what's got my name on it, Lord? What sacrifices are you asking me to make? Not everything's got your name on it. But again, you've got to be careful with this one. We can turn it into a law. I'm only going to give if God tells, tells me so, right? If you're not careful, if you don't hold this in balance with the rest of them, you're going to get out of balance, you're going to be like that kid who's like, hey, I bought you this. Why? Well, because my mom said I had to, right? You're going to be a grumpy giver, right? I give because God says I don't or else. That ain't what God's about. So yeah, we need to be guided by the Holy Spirit, but we got to take guidance by the Holy Spirit and balance it by the other six principles. Otherwise, we're going to be out of balance, right? Get it? Okay. Verse four, or not verse four, uh, principle four. God provides for his people richly, and he delights in our enjoyment of his material gifts. Verse 17, God gives good gifts for our enjoyment. This means that the Lord loves it. When I bite into a tomahawk ribeye that's been aged for about 40 days, and my, my taste buds are just like, yeah, let's go. Praise Jesus for beef, right? Thank you, Lord. Love me some cows. The Lord loves it when you're able to go on vacation with your family and wake up next to the ocean and you enjoy that and you can look out at that and be content and happy and grateful and praise him for the ocean, for the beach, for your family. He's glorified in the comfort that we feel in a clean house and a warm bed and a well-manicured lawn. He even likes it when we enjoy clothes, right? I fancy the watch I just bought. It's smart, Right? He gives us good gifts because he's a good dad and he wants us to enjoy the gifts that he gives us. But again, we got to take this with the other six. Otherwise, you can be that Christian that's like got the G6 plane. It's like, look at what God's blessed me with. We can justify extravagance to a degree that is disgusting to the Lord. He wants us to enjoy good gifts, but it's got to be tempered by principle one. Those who have should give those who have not. By principle three, 
The Holy Spirit's going to guide you. Sometimes he's going to ask you to give up some modern comforts so that you can give and be generous, right? Verse, uh, principle five, don't trust in riches. Don't define yourself or your life by the abundance of your possessions. This is exactly what verse 17a says. Don't trust money. The love of money is the root of all evil. If we're not careful, we can take a good thing like money and turn it into a God thing. We can start looking to money at, 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 as the provider, as the one who gives us security and significance. God says, I'm the only one that can give you security and significance. Money can't do that. Money's uncertain. It's got wings on it. Look at that bill. It's got the eagle, right? It's going to fly away from you. Trust me. Remember a few weeks ago? This big idea has just stuck with me. It's the key to generosity. It's a shift in mindset. The Lord works, supports strongly those who wait for him. He's a God of abundance. Our dad strongly supports those who wait for him. This is where real, real generosity starts. This mindset shifts us from worshiping money and living with the scarcity mindset to freeing us up to be generous motivated by the reality that we're a child of the king. He's got the whole world in his hand and he strongly supports those who wait for him. Last principle, principle number six. Wealth building is okay. Wealth building is okay. If you'll notice in verse 17, Paul doesn't condemn the wealthy. Hey, I noticed you're rich. Shame. Shame on you. You should sell all that. Paul doesn't do that. He said, hey, I noticed God's blessed you. You're wealthy. Good for you. Good for you. Use it well. Steward it well. Proverbs actually commends wealth building. It says it all over the place, but I'll just give you one verse today. Proverbs 13, 22. It says, good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren. To their grandchildren. Folks, that's a lot of cash, right? It's one thing to leave it to your kids, but to your grandkids, like, you've done well. He says, good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren. But sinners, their wealth is passed on to the godly. Proverbs commends wealth building as a good thing. But here again, we've got to weigh this principle with all the others. My principle five, that we should not trust in our savings account. It's uncertain. My principle one, that we should give our excess to those who need it more than we do. My principle two, that we should pour out our lives for others, just like Jesus did for us. Here's my hope and prayer. My hope and prayer for you is that this message alleviates some of the maybe guilt that you might be feeling going through the generosity series and also helps you live a more balanced life when we talk about what it means to be biblically generous. Our God is the God of abundance, and yes, he calls us to make sacrifices sometimes, but he also gives good gifts to those whom he loves for our enjoyment. There's balance. There's balance. I put the link to J.D. Greer's uh, blog and message, maybe as a point of application. He says some really good stuff that I wasn't able to get to about debt and some other things. In that message, if you're a reader, go to the blog. If you'd rather listen to it, go to the sermon. Check it out. It's super helpful. But um, why don't we pray and we'll wrap up. The band can come up and I'll pray to conclude us here this morning. Father, we praise you for how generous you are to us. Lord, we could list a million ways that you've given good things to us. We could talk about the material possessions, the, the fact that, that all of us most likely were born in America and that our poor people are richer than two-thirds of the rest of the world. 
We could talk about our cars and our warm houses and air conditioning and silverware. We could talk about salvation. We could talk about faith and hope and love and peace. We could go on and on and on of the ways that you are generous to us. And we just want to praise you for for all of that, Lord. I pray that you would help us never take any of it for granted, but that you would make us people that are grateful, that are filled with gratitude. You'd help us comprehend the height and depth and width and breadth of your love. The riches that you give to us in Christ Jesus. I pray, Father, that that would so transform us from the inside out, that we wouldn't be grumpy givers, that we wouldn't be guilt-tripped givers, but that we would be people who give generously as a response to what you have given to us. Help us in this, Lord. Help us be balanced. Help us be wise. Help us be biblical. Help us walk in the freedom of the gospel not in the dead religious rules that we like to create for ourselves. We love you, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen.